So the last thing that I made with my butcher box shipment was aloo chicken, and it turned out really well. One of my favorite things is to get the shipment and then open up the New York Times cooking app and see what I want to create over the next few weeks. It helps my creative cooking chops, and both my wife and I really enjoy it. ButcherBox offers a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing price, plus they have exclusive member deals, and they also have their own recipes, although I am preferential to the New York Times app, but that's just me. And you can sign up today at ButcherBox.com conspirituality and get their special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. So for that year, you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com conspirituality and use code conspirituality to choose your free for a year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. Hey everyone, welcome to Conspirituality. I'm Derek Barris. I'm Matthew Remsky. I'm Julian Walker. Hi. All right. And this is this podcast has come about from Matthew and Julian, who I've both known for about nine years now, uh, either online as Matthew or in person with Julian. We're both in Los Angeles. And I've had them as a guest on my Earthrise podcast the last two weeks. And a, I really love talking to both of them, and B, I think that these topics that we're addressing, which we all independently work on ourselves, are very important. And so we decided to make this a regular thing. So we'll be doing this podcast every Thursday. I want to give a brief overview of what conspirituality is about, and then we're going to talk about our personal investments in this field of research and discussion. And then from there, we'll move on and talk about this week's topic. Uh, So Matthew wrote this uh, sort of overview, which I like a lot. As the alt-right and New Age horseshoe toward each other in a blur of disinformation, well-intentioned discourse and honest debate are being smothered. Charismatic influencers exploit their followers by peddling dangerous conspiracy theories. In the process, spiritual beliefs that nurture creativity and meaning are transformed into memes of a quickly globalizing paranoia. In summation, conspiracy theories are really ruining a lot of discourse, right? (laughs) (laughs) Conspirituality attempts to bring clarity to this conversation. A journalist, me, cult researcher, which is Matthew, and philosophical skeptic, Julian, I love that, Matthew, discuss the stories, cognitive dissonances, and cultic dynamics tearing through the yoga, wellness, and new spirituality worlds. Uh, Conspirituality first came about in 2009 by a Vancouver rap group, I actually came across the term a few weeks ago. My friend Ben sent me an article on Medium that a philosopher in London was talking about that topic, but it actually, he was referencing a 2011 paper by Charlotte Ward and David Voss that talks about the growing overlap between paranoid conspiracism of right-wingers and sort of the world that Matthew Julian and I have been engaged in, which is yoga, wellness, we can be, I believe, considered liberals in terms of our political thinking, but more about uh, sort of understanding a holism of body and mind. 
mm-hmm. and how that has collided with the with the right wing, which has been happening for a while, but this pandemic has really made it fester in a way that I, I never actually foresaw. Uh, so we're going to get to uh, our topic this week in a moment, but briefly, since this is the first official episode, we wanted to give you our stakes in the game. And I'll actually let Matthew go first since I've been talking for a minute, and then we'll go Julian and root back to me. Cool. Um, well, I'm. my name is Matthew. Uh, I guess we'll put our details in the show notes, but um, just a little bit of background. I grew up in a super Orthodox Catholic environment, uh, prone to daydreaming. Uh, obsessive writing. By 19, I'd won like a a national poetry award here in Canada, and I was starting to work on the first of two very strange novels. Um, In my early 20s, I had uh, a lot of probably six months worth of idiopathic seizures, grand mal seizures, um, quite uh, extreme actually, uh, out uh, unconscious for hours at a time. Uh, waking up in my apartment trying to figure out what had happened. And the fallout from that uh, has always intersected in very mild ways with something something called uh, Geshwin's syndrome, uh, which uh, features usually an obsession with religiosity, uh, but also hypergraphia or the inability to stop writing. So those things resonate. I, I haven't been diagnosed with this, but, but I, I have suspicions. Uh, the short-term fallout of those experiences was a feeling of spiritual isolation and longing. And so these days, I can't help but to look at intense or terrifying experiences that dis- get described in spiritual terms, maybe because that's what the person has available to them uh, through neurological and mental health uh, lenses. Uh, but then, you know, from 26 to 33, I was recruited into two different cults. And this was basically during the time uh, in which I would have developed a more, I don't know, legitimate professional life. And I certainly would have finished college, but instead uh, I became a yoga teacher. Um, and uh, I, I mean, I should say that at this juncture, I'm trying to go back to school online for uh, counseling psychology uh, to finish the college stuff that I wasn't able to finish, but also so that I can help cult survivors. Um, Today, as a cult researcher, I'm really interested in how a lot of yoga and Buddhist groups especially control the bodies and psychologies of members, especially through the various theaters that orbit the male charismatic leader. Uh, Now, I've published on these groups for a number of years now. It's been depressing. Uh, I've been trolled, harassed, but, you know, I've come to see that it's been worth it. And also... I kind of have a joke about still having a religion, but it's the religion of disillusionment or that moment in which uh, there's clarity after a particular spell, especially an abusive spell lifts. Uh, So it's been nasty work that I've been involved with, but it's also enhanced my belief in people's resilience. And it's, you know, made me spend a lot more time with my partner and my sons. Uh, So that's a little bit about me. It's fantastic. Matthew, we've known each other 10 or 12 years. I did not know some of those details. So I'm yeah. just taking it in. Yeah. Right. I, I knew some of the later details, but not more of the childhood stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well nice, nice to meet you, Joey. Yeah. Nice to meet you. And I, I too, in high school, won a, a national poetry prize and was published in a journal, that, that kind of stuff. And that's Seriously? the funny thing I'm thinking about the three of us is that, you know, here we are talking from this very sort of uh, skeptical philosophical, intellectual, 
place in, in, in yogi, meditator, musician, DJ, dancer type people, right? right? And yet we found ourselves really interested in in this type of critical thinking. So right. for me, I, uh, I grew up in South Africa. And growing up in South Africa, there was a there was a, a clear understanding that my family and other people that we were close with had that really we lived in a police state with a censored media. And if you wanted to know what was really going on, you needed pathways of finding out information from the underground. So, you know, I, I grew up with a clear understanding that the media was uh, controlled and, and was not telling the truth that most of my white friends did not know what was really going on in the country. I grew up with a lot of kids who thought white people were in the majority, who were in the majority in a country where we made up about 10% of the population. So, you know, I have my own sort of background in terms of a very early sense of the urgency of finding out what's really true. And, and not only what's really true factually, but also in a kind of moral truth, a kind of investigation of, well, you know, why is it that as people who are opposed to apartheid, we're actually right? And the system that we live under is actually evil, that that, that kind of horrific discrimination and oppression was wrong. So, so that, that's sort of where I begin is in, in that soup. And then I, I got into yoga and meditation and psychedelics and, and being in a rock band and all of that kind of stuff in my teens and, and was very drawn to the idea of waking up, to the idea of, of, you know, dropping acid was sort of taking the red pill for me and meditating and, and, and getting into group mind with other musicians and with, with, uh, with audiences. And... Over time, I would say for me, as I went through my 20s, I started to grow disillusioned. I traveled to India, I spent time in ashrams, I did a lot of yoga, a lot of meditation. And in some ways, I started to become disillusioned and realized, oh, I needed psychotherapy to manage some of the things I was trying to work out through spiritual practice and, and psychedelics. And so I got involved in that, a different kind of awakening, so more of a psychological awakening as opposed to a perhaps a spiritual or an artistic one and then as my as my path continued i found disillusionment with the new age and more of an interest in perhaps the type of enlightenment that we that we trace back to uh, the 17th and 18th centuries in europe a, a sense of the value of reason and science and so where i end up in terms of my stakes in this conversation is i'm i've, I've been committed and fascinated with how we integrate awareness practices, mind-body practices with a, a, a kind of honest understanding of science as well as, as the, the wonders that science opens up to us, especially neuroscience for me the last 10 years or so, and, and psychology and how so much of what I think goes wrong in popular spirituality has to do with an absence of psychological and scientific awareness and that these things can be wonderfully integrated with awareness practices and, and in community. You know, that, that there's, there's something inherently healthy about that kind of integration. Um, and so the, the time that we're in right now with the profusion of conspiracy theories around COVID-19 and how they have infiltrated new age circles and yoga circles, uh, for me, it's, it's, it's been a, a powerful validation of my sense that a certain type of magical thinking and pattern seeking obsession 
and desire to sort of always interpret everything through a particular metaphysical lens has a shadow. And here it is. We're, we're seeing the shadow play out. So that's me. All right. Well, since we're all talking about poetry, uh, my, <laughs> my highlight as a playwright was having my last play that I ever wrote featured at the New York and Poets Cafe. I actually studied under Miguel Agarin at Rutgers, who co-founded the New York and Poets Cafe. I spent a lot of time what? there. And Bob Holman, the other co-founder of the New York, and I uh, became a friend of mine. I produced a lot of shows at the Bowery Poetry Club for years. So my twenties were <laughs> were poetry. So yes, we do we do come to these more intellectualized conversations at times, but they are rooted in in a, an extreme love. I mean, my real love is mythology, and so poetry mm -hmm. and mythology, of course, are mm -hmm. very related. Um, I remember once probably when I was about 24, 25, walking in Manhattan with my father and asking him why he raised me with no religion. And he told me that he grew up with too much of it mm. and that his parents made him go to the local Russian Orthodox church, but they stayed home and he just grew disillusioned with it. So he decided he would never raise his children with any religion. And the, the uh, irony, I guess you could say, is that I have a degree in religion because by the time I got to college, I was. I also found psychedelics. That's the topic of the book I'm working on now. But uh, there was something about the Buddhist and Hindu texts that called to me. It was nothing. Even even if you don't, you're not raised with religion. Growing up in America, it is a Christian nation in terms of its mm -hmm. ideological foundations. So there there are certain ways of thinking that are indicative of Christianity in this country. And to have my eyes opened to these alternatives uh, was groundbreaking. For two years, I was the religion columnist at the Daily Targum at Rutgers, and because I was also studying journalism, which was going to be and has been part of my career uh, ever since. And what I noticed was I would go in the same day, I might go over to the Shabbat Center and then talk to a priest. I might talk to an imam. I would be interviewing all these different religious figures around campus, and every one of them thought that their way was the right way. And there was varying degrees of certainty and there was varying degrees of tolerance, but they were all sure that they had, as Alan Watts would say, the secret, the secret sauce or the, the, the juice, right? And that made me never really, even in the height of my yoga fascination in my 20s, it never allowed me to take any one system or person too seriously, because I just knew that, as the Taoists would say, it is, it is a river that leads to an ocean. So if you, if you confuse your river for the ocean, that's where you get in trouble. But if you understand that that stream opens up into something greater, then you can understand that it's a pathway, but that the ocean itself is, is much grander than any single stream can ever you know, uh, attain or lead you to. And being growing up in that sort of environment with my father, uh, being a more skeptic about most of things in life, that just also opened it up to being to just seeing the way that people these what I feel are really charlatans, whether they purposefully are or not, uh, misguide people and mislead people, and that just it just bothers me uh, because people come to practices like yoga, meditation, Buddhism, because they're seeking something and they're trying to make sense out of things and they're vulnerable. And I think vulnerability is a very important quality and it's one we should nurture and allow to grow. 
And when people come in and take advantage of that, whether for vanity or for financial gain, it's just always struck me as seriously problematic. And so in my writing and in everything that I do, I've, even in my teaching, I've always tried to create a, a space where people can play and explore, but without there being a cult of any personality, right? Never, never giving everyone credit for their due, but never putting too much emphasis on the contributions of any one person. That's really important. And I've looked at everything in my life through that filter and it, it's made me skeptical of a lot of things, especially as we said during this time. I, I try not to be surprised, but I, I am truly surprised at the way that the right and the left have come together right now. And specifically, and I think this is something we'll get into in the topic for today, the way that the left and the wellness community doesn't realize they're repeating talking points from the Trump, Trump administration. Trump. That was weird. Or, uh, or from the alt-right. And I think that the alt-right knows what they're doing here. And I think that the, where we're coming from, there's, there's a real ignorance of where all of this is, originates. And with all that said, the topic of today is The Coronation by Charles Eisenstein, which is uh, an essay that has gotten a lot of traction. And I only... I first found out about it when Daniel Pinchbeck wrote a rebuttal to it, and then Matthew very quickly after wrote his. So I'm going to let him explain this essay and kind of lead the conversation from there. Cool. Yeah. So um, I think the topic that we chose or the title is Coronation for Whom? Tracking Eisenstein's Arguments, Influence, and Networks. Uh, so some of you might have seen the essay, uh, and if you haven't, we'll put the link in the show notes. But it's a 9,000-word essay-slash-sermon that Eisenstein dropped on March 28th. Uh, now, this is only two weeks after lockdowns began to roll around the world. Uh, it's also six weeks before pandemic dropped, and we'll put a flag in that because there's a relationship between these two things. Now, Eisenstein is a favorite New Age theorist of the Burning Man and Wanderlust set, and according to various bio notes, he's a Yale grad in math and philosophy. He's taught at the very bucolic Goddard College in Vermont, and he's published a number of books. So Sacred Economics uh, came out in 2011, and The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible in 2013. Uh, these are well-loved amongst contemplative futurists. Uh, if you dig back in his book list, though, you'll find things like a book from 2007 called Transformational Weight Loss, uh, which I hope you guys remind me to come back to because uh, I just found this today and it's kind of blowing my mind. It answers a couple of questions for me, actually. Uh, now, through all of this, he's made it onto Oprah's Super Soul Sunday. Uh, and with the coronation, he seems to really be up-leveling his reach. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I, I, I said to both of you uh, in the outset of this project is I really want to focus on, like, the cultural impacts of... Uh, the various conspirituality strains that we start to look at, because it's very easy to get lost in the weeds of, you know, sort of minor commentaries or or um, sort of fringe characters. So I, I really I really want what we focus on to be able to look at, at what are the broader impacts. And for this essay, the stats are pretty clear. Like we don't have access to Eisenstein's analytics, but um, from his own Facebook page, it was shared almost 2000 times, but then it really takes off on Twitter. 
uh, with Jack Dorsey himself, CEO of Twitter, sh- pushing it to four and a half million uh, uh, subscribers. Russell Brand has 11 million followers. Julian Lennon uh, put it out. Uh, Dr. Phil Hammond, who I don't know, but he has 80,000 fo- followers. He works for the NHS in Britain. There's an anti-Modi activist named Prashant Bhushan in India, and he has 1.6 million followers. Susan Sarandon uh, posted it, uh, 670,000 followers. And then Ani DeFranco uh, uh, pushed it out there over Twitter with 56,000 followers as well. Um, Now, content-wise, the basic theme, I would say, is that not knowing in a vaguely uh, Easterny spiritual sense of the word is the most intelligent approach uh, but also the most empathetic approach to not only the stress that's related to COVID-19 and the lockdowns, but also the data swirling around the pandemic. Um, and this means that, according to Eisenstein, we should be open to doubts that we have about everything, uh, health policies, health reporting, death rates, uh, whether it's even possible to know what's happening. Uh, The main thing that we want to avoid, he argues, is fear, which he says is actually more dangerous than the virus because fear baits us into doubling down on our failing strategies of repression and control, uh, which is kind of a keynote in his work, as far as I can tell. He concludes, however, that this fog of uncertainty and destabilization can be a liminal or initiatory process for those who are ready for it. Uh, and for a new world in which separation, which is kind of his bugbear word, uh, has been replaced by non-dual something, uh, which he calls in this work, and then I believe in other works, uh, the great reunion or the time of the reunion. So the big takeaway is that uh, for this essay, the real crisis is not the pandemic itself, but how we feel about the pandemic. Uh, And if we succumb to the virus of fear, Uh, we will default to emotional and creative repression and we won't enjoy or take advantage of this transformative moment. Uh, So so that's my summary. But just to be fair, uh, I want to also quote uh, the the, uh, memes that are listed on the Friends of Charles Eisenstein's Facebook page. Uh, They're pull quotes from the essay and it gives a sense of what uh, they, what, I don't know, his people or him, I I don't know who, who does them, but whatever his whatever that that his following really believes is important about this essay so it's 9000 words you know how are you going to sum it up well they've kind of done it for us uh and so one pull quote is how much are we willing to live in fear there's a lot of rhetorical questions right uh covid-19 which are actually accusatory covid-19 will eventually subside but the threat of infectious disease is permanent um Another rhetorical question. If it keeps us safer, do we want to live in a world where human beings never congregate? See, anyway, we can get to who would possibly possibly be able to answer that, right? Uh, How much, another one, how much of life do we want to sacrifice at the altar of security? Uh, And then it just kind of like, it goes totally uh, psychedelic with, on the other side of the fear, we can see the love that death liberates. So, um, Yeah. uh, What did you guys think? I've got a lot more to say about who he links to, uh, what the essay is connected with. Um, I I have a lot of thoughts about the actual uh, rhetorical style and some uh, writing devices within it. Uh, But yeah, what what, what did you guys think? Well, in in terms of everything that you were just outlining so so well, 
that, you know, there's this, there's this sense that there's a pre-existing lens that has certain landmarks in it. Right. Right. And, and you're, you're elucidating those already. The, the real virus is fear. And, and, you know, that, that is, that's a, that's a new age trope that's been around for a really long time that you're either in fear or you're in love. And right. if you're in, you can't be in fear. And if you're in fear, you can't be in love, which is the ultimate reality that we're seeking to always be in touch with. And so fear is the enemy. Fear is wrong. If you're afraid you are failing to be appropriately spiritual. I think that this, I think that this man is a, is a wonderful writer. And obviously, um, just there, there's an eloquence and an intelligence at work there that is beautiful. And I, I get the appeal. I really get the appeal. And I feel like there's the word that kept coming up for me is slipperiness. There's a slipperiness in the way that the ideas are being unfolded that simultaneously appeals to that particular new age futurist idealist the true answer to all of our problems is that we wake up out of separation, that we come into a place of deep unity, that we realize that these ultimate truths, right, that are, that are in some ways beyond words, that have this non-dual quality about them. Um, I, I think of it as a kind of a faux non-duality because there's a category error of trying to apply um, ideas and, and perspectives from the phenomenological inner work of meditation to the outside world, to politics, to something like a pandemic. Um, so all of that I find fascinating and, and disturbing. And I feel like he, he sort of, he tries to ride several different lines. So he's trying to ride a line between appealing to that, that particular set of spiritual ideas, whilst also sounding sort of intellectual and, be, and, and making reference to data. And, and he, doesn't, he doesn't really ever uh, fully step into the light as being a, a, a prophetic kind of spiritual teacher, even though that, that is there. And then he also, he also will say all sorts of things about conspiratorial thinking and, and fear and paranoia, not being something that he's kind of down with, but then any of the links that he includes are links to people explaining the conspiracy theory. Um, I, 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 I think I found it more disturbing for that slipperiness than I might find someone else who was just out and out saying, you know, 5G and vaccines are, are the problem here. Uh, we are under tyrannical control by the reptilian overlords of the deep state who are trying to introduce a new world order. That to me is less disturbing than someone who is doing such a good job in flowery prose of... And I don't, I don't know that he's necessarily uh, deliberately doing that, but that, that's the style, and it, and it comes across as deeply dishonest to me. So there are three things that I wrote down while reading the essay, and uh, one of them, actually the first one I know Matthew will have some relationship to, which is uh, it reminded me of the strains of Michael Roche. I practiced at Jiva Mukti for a long time, and I... I did some work for them and I, I never taught there, but it, you know, there have some, I still have good friends who came from there. And I think it was a great institution that kind of had a lot of cult qualities to it around veganism specifically. But the one thing that would always get me was when a teacher would say, if you cannot backbend well, your heart is not open. And as I was reading Eisenstein's essay, that's what I kept thinking about that because 
I, I've broken a lot of bones and I've spent a lot of time in hospitals in my youth, uh, including almost a year laid up after breaking a femur. And there are physical problems that I still have from that time. I'm not very backbendy. And when you've had a lot of physical trauma and then you have someone telling me if you can't do a good wheel pose, which I still can't 20 some years of my practice, that I, it's a spiritual failure that that's what I kept getting. That's what I get with Julian, what you were referencing about the whole, I'm just asking this question, mm-hmm. but that question is leading because I, I kind of, there was a piece on uh, Joe Rogan being the mainstream media. And I, I haven't listened to Rogan lately, but I have listened to many. And sometimes he does that too, where he'll be like, I'm just asking this, but you know what? If you're a public figure, you have to have a little more responsibility in the questions that you're asking. Bill Moyers is one of my, one of my heroes, but a great example of that. There's a responsibility to being in this position of asking questions that you do your research before you ask them. And so that was the first thing. Uh, the other thing, and you, again, Julian, you brought this up with the, the linking to people. He links to a, a someone named Lisa Rankin, who I don't know, but the whole essay he talks about is like this whole, like why you shouldn't fear death thing. And that keeps coming around during this whole Mm -hmm. pandemic. This, this almost like, like I'm I'm, keeps, I'm manning up because I, 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 I don't, I'm not scared of death. And whenever I read stuff like that, I'm, I always wonder if these people have ever had their life threatened or had some illness, which actually made them question their mortality. Because when you do a little fear of death, isn't a bad thing, right? It's, it's, it's healthy. Uh, I think that we don't die well in America. I think we should make hospice care and the end of stage life care way better, but that's a different story. This whole bravado about not fearing death is problematic. And that was, in the essay as well. And the last thing, and this is sort of the big picture overview, is this confusion of these of short-term adjustments for long-term outcomes. Mm-hmm. And Yasha Monk, who I might be mispronouncing his name, but he's an excellent writer at The Atlantic, he wrote a piece about, um, about the fact that after the 1918-1919 uh, uh, flu pandemic, uh, the Roaring Twenties happened. And he just warned not to fall into chronocentrism, which is this idea that my age, like what I'm living through is more important than everything that's come before. Like this is the moment. This is, this is the coronation, right? This, we have finally, we are the ones we've been waiting for, <laughs> that constant right. thing. It's this idea that we have something that all of humanity and it's 350,000 years have been building up for us to carry this torch. And, uh, the very last thing that Malk writes in the essay is let's avoid the temptation of chronocentrism. Sooner or later, this bout of pestilence will come to an end. Humanity will survive this pandemic in its aftermath. As after so many other disasters, we will learn to thrive anew. And although the world we then inhabit will be different, it won't be unrecognizable. And when I read that, I'm like, what a level headed, understandable approach to something that we have a short term, you know, we have to do certain things just to save as many people as possible, but understanding that there's a long game out there. And mm-hmm. I feel like what's happening with people like Eisenstein is, is they're just, they're, they're taking this moment to put up this spiritual pedestal that mm-hmm. they're, they're on top of, even if they're just asking and that we're transforming into something different. 
we, we, there's a lot of transformation happening now, but the, the approach of that essay was so grandiose that it was really hard for me to even make sense of what we're transforming into, which should mm-hmm. be the entire point of an essay of that magnitude. Yeah. May I, may I leap in, Matthew, before you, before you take over? Because I just wanted to add one thing. And by the way, um, Derek, whatever's happening on your end, in terms of a glitch, every now and again, it's not, it's not coming through on this end. So. Oh, sure. okay. Okay. Good to know. Okay. It's, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so I just wanted to add to that, as you're saying, Derek, and, and as you pointed out in the beginning, Matthew, this is two weeks into quarantine. Right. That publishes this lengthy uh, uh, manifesto, right? Grandiose manifesto about the coronation. This, okay, now, now it's coming. This is something that's very common in cult discourse, right? That, that there is a prophetic kind of moment that, that's very important that we, me and my followers are living through. We know what's about to happen next. It is of absolutely massive proportions. It will change everything about humanity. Um, and all of this is, as you were saying, Derek, uh, you know, the, the, the small adjustments we're making right now are obviously now, you know, we, we have to argue about whether or not we want those forever or we're going to wake up into love and light. And the other part that, that I didn't say earlier that I wanted to add in, Matthew, is this, this extreme relativism that has become such a huge part of how people think and talk about things in the new age, that, that the, the sense that not knowing is, is, is better than, than knowing that it's, it's more humble, that ultimate spiritual truths are, are beyond dualistic conceptions of true and false, or, and it's, it's all this kind of circular self-contradictory set of ideas that ultimately I think serve the purpose of shielding us from cognitive dissonance and from feeling emotional and psychological tension and from having to pick a side when sometimes one side is completely wrong. And so there's something very seductive about a higher truth that, that, simul- that, that, that disguises ideology in some kind of relativist, non-dual way. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree. And there's a number of things that I want to follow up on, but I'm glad that you brought up uh, the, that you both brought up the, the grandiosity of the transformational moment, because, you know, the title of our podcast project that's just getting off the ground is Conspirituality. And my understanding from the research of Ward and others is that what we really see is this conjunction of uh, the the of conspiracy, conspiratorial discourse uh, in which three very spiritual ideas apply, you know, uh, everything uh, happens, nothing happens without a reason, uh, nothing is as it seems, and everything is connected. Uh, but, but from the conspiracist standpoint, you know, especially when we drill down into the, the terror of, of places like QAnon and so on, uh, we, we have this, this uh, sort of apocalyptic moment that is being predicted, but then the spiritualism that uh, conjoins with with conspiracism to form conspirituality labels that moment as being uh, ultimately transformative or ushering in a new era or or it's a utopian vision. Uh, and so and so, yeah, I think we're really getting to the to the heart of our theme that we're going to we're going to be exploring over the next uh, however long we do this. Um, I'm really glad that you brought up the, the, um, this, this juxtaposition between fear and love that is uh, a new age keynote. And it has been for years. And it, 
reminds me of the fact that like the second cult that I was recruited into was rooted in A Course in Miracles, uh, where the, the, the underlying sort of uh, word salad refrain is, you know, uh, fear doesn't actually exist, only love is real, or if you're in fear, love can't exist, or love is your only reality, and therefore fear is an illusion. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, it would be interesting to sort of like just do some data on tracking the various you know, phrases around the irre- unreality of fear and the reality of love through time over the last 30 years, because I think we're seeing it in spades now. Um, and, and with regard to the slipperiness, uh, I just want to give a shout out to uh, Jack Adam Weber, who took the time to rebut uh, the coronation almost point by point. Uh, and, you know, his Herculean effort really sort of proves the point that it takes a lot more time to correct BS than it does to make it. Um, you know, he, he, he spends 10,000 words on his rebuttal, which we'll post in the, in the show notes. Uh, one of his main points is that Eisenstein is pretty successful at hiding his own conspiracism by pretending to be above it, not just through sort of burying his links way down in the, way down in the text, uh, but... Um, because he, you know, gave this critique of Eisenstein's closet conspiracism, uh, Eisenstein took notice enough to base his own follow-up, which was released just last week, uh, on this very point. Um, And it's called The Conspiracy Myth. Uh, But Eisenstein fails to cite or to link to Weber's critique. And then he goes ahead and he strawmans it. Uh, so when Weber says that uh, Eisenstein is a closet conspiracist, he's referring to overstatements that contribute to the aura of intellectual relativism and then open the door to COVID-19 trutherism. And, you know, so he, he's, he's points out phrases or sentences like this. So this is Eisenstein, quote, since the threat of infectious disease, like the threat of terrorism, never goes away, not really, uh, control measures can easily become permanent if we were going in this direction anyway, the current justification must be part of a deeper impulse, unquote. So, so that must especially, which Weber points out, is like a, an absolutely unsupported claim like that attributes intentionality and a, and a plan and all of this stuff. Um, you know, it just doesn't get addressed at all by Eisenstein. And the basic point of his follow-up is that COVID-19 Truth or conspiracies, uh, they reveal collective unconscious truths. Uh, and that's why he, he does this pun. He calls his essay The Conspiracy Myth. Um, so he says that the, you know, whether it's 5G or it's, you know, vaccinations are really modes of surveillance, uh, he's saying that, well, these, don't, these really just speak to a deeper social psychology than our evidence-based reporting can ever provide. Uh, and evidence-based reporting has fallen out of trust. So, so what did we expect? So for him, it can be a positive thing that evidence-based communications are now being contested by the mythic. Uh, so now the mythic or now like COVID conspiracies get elevated to mythic status. Uh, and that's kind of something that everybody can, I don't know, uh, feel better about or something or, or meditate on? Yeah. So I'm not, I'm above it all. So therefore it doesn't matter if the conspiracies are true or false, because I have this lens that sees them as a myth that sees them as a, as an outpicturing of the collective unconscious. Right. 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 And actually let me just break in because, because he sets, he sets his readership up for this 
The conspiracy myth is, is a couple is several weeks after the coronation, but two weeks before he publishes the coronation, he goes on Facebook live with Sayer G, his friend, uh, who's also the founder of Green Med Info, Info a famous anti-vax site. Uh, and they have an exchange which just completely blows my mind because what he ends up saying is, uh, you know, all of this stuff is happening uh, and, you know, we're hearing about 5G and, and Wuhan towers and stuff like that. Uh, and, and then he says, let me give the quote here. He actually says, um, there's lots of narratives. There's this one, there's that one. And the way I hold them is, uh, and then there's the standard narrative too and minor variations on the standard narrative. And then here he says, so I like to hold them and see who I become as I inhabit those narratives and how I see the world. Do I feel helpless? Do I feel activated? Do I feel defeated? Do I feel despair? What view of human nature does it induce in me to hold these different narratives? And and I think you can I just get from the rhythm there that his primary concern is him right? It's like the narratives are, you know, first of all, first of all, what reporters, what the WHO, what your public health officials are telling you about the pandemic, these are all narratives and they're all equal. And we can try them on like pieces of clothes and see how we look or feel in them. Uh, and then we can sort of assess them according to how, not how they impact us, uh, but how they make us, how they make us feel. Uh, and this like, sort of traces back to, you know, I mean, that's two weeks before the coronation. He just continues on in that same vein, I, I guess, without any editorial support. Uh, and, you know, his essay ends up being sort of a, a hymn to this very abstract but privileged, you know, uh, first person plural subject that doesn't really identify itself. It doesn't have any positionality. Uh, it It is able to sort of ivory tower around and, and really, like, I think what's most heartbreaking about it is that it has such emotional sort of pull for its readers, for his readership, obviously, that I wonder what happens to the actual feelings of the people who might not have read it and had other feelings, right? Like they, how, how you know, because if you spend 9,000 words, it's 45 minutes in this kind of trance state of kind of, you know, vague utopianism, but also, but also, wow, what's happening? The, the world is really weird, but we can be wise at the same time. Mm -hmm. If you, if you spend that time, um, I, my question is like, do you actually miss out on being able to grieve something or uh, mm -hmm. do you, do you, where, like where, where were your 9,000 words? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I wanted to just, be, be, before you say something, Derek, that that's exactly it. That's exactly the extreme relativism, relativism I'm talking about, right? Right. That everything is a mere narrative. And all, as you correctly said, all of these narratives are on an equal level playing field, none more valid or more false or more problematic or more dysfunctional or more beneficial than the other. So, so don't, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. But he's, but, talking hey, to, but he's talking to a guy who's platforming the exactly. truther type narratives. And he's saying, there's this moment in the interview, which was totally amazing where he, he says, you know, so I heard somebody talking about, um, you know, he, somebody talking about the coronavirus as a cover story for illness caused by the 5G rollout. And Sayer actually says, I looked at that. Yeah. And I'm mm -hmm. like, you looked at it. 
you published articles about it, right? Like you created a whole website called Questioning COVID. It's like, it's like I looked at that. Yeah. Oh, really? You looked at it. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. You looked at it? No, you made other people look at it, actually. Well, that's it's what, incredible. It's incredible. It seems I'm just to be, asking the question. Right? It seems to be a technique, honestly, because that's what Mikovitz did in the pandemic when Mickey totally. asked her, are you anti-vax? And she's, oh, no, I do this when she's been yes. video at anti-vax wearing vaxxed shirts and writing a book with a known anti-vax. Like, it's in, in this suspension of disbelief we're supposed to have based around that when they say one thing, but they're doing all this other. I do wonder, though, and this is the question, and I don't, Again, the whole Kelly Brogan, Sayerji, like world, I've known Greed Med Info. I usually just gloss over it because I know it's bull. But I, I want it, like, is the ultimate goal here, is it selling books? Is it speaking gigs? Or is there some sort of spiritual fulfillment that they're feeling? I, I can't speak to that, but I do wonder why you would take that tact. Like why you would say, I've looked into it when you've been one of the people leading it. Yeah, I mean, that's a very dodgy thing to say. And I try to stay away in all of my cult research stuff uh, around intentionality or, or motivation. It's, it's really, it's really speculative, but it, it's, it's, it's really, really suspicious. And it's possible that, you know, Eisenstein doesn't know the extent to which uh, Sayers sites has have promoted 5G stuff. Um, it's possible that in that moment, Sayers sort of covering his ass and, and saying, oh, yeah, you know, I've kind of heard about that, too. And then they move on in the conversation because really they're, they're going to be talking about myths and not who's spreading around propaganda. So. Um, so, yeah, it's it's what we can say, I think, is that is that the Eisenstein sphere and the green med info sphere share an economic space. Uh, and there's, there's overlap between them. And it's almost as if, uh, you know, it's like, I, I have this little, uh, this, this way, you know, since, since Eisenstein's so, so hot on mythology, uh, you know, I would like to present an idea called the Eisenstein Trojan horse, um, because, you know, I think that the, 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 the essays are like a really big, well-crafted archetypal mythic thing. It's offered as a gift as in gift economy, like, and it seems to roll across the lines of political division on, on, you know, these wheels of totalizing theory. And, you know, everybody who encounters it thinks it's very beautiful. It makes them feel serene. Uh, they pull it into their squares, their workshops, their conventions, uh, their board meetings, their ayahuasca ceremonies, uh, and it takes a lot of effort to pull it in. It's like, it's 9,000 words, right? And they sit quietly in front of it, and the sun sets, and they're gazing at it, and they go to bed happy and memorized and comforted, and then when they retire, this door drops open in, in, the, in the belly of the horse, and Kelly Brogan, Sergi, Christiane Northrup, like, and Robert Kennedy all like rappel down on ninja ropes and, and start setting up camp pamphlet tables or something like that. Um, but the thing is, it's like, it's like, we're not just talking about a town because Jack Dorsey is tweeting this guy, right? Mm -hmm. So, so I don't know how to, I wish I, I knew who did the data science on how to measure the impact of something like that. But we're not yeah. talking about, we're not talking about a small thing. We're talking about, like an affect, a way of being towards 
information and data that uh, really opens the door. It really opens the door towards towards COVID trutherism, and yep. yeah, and and doesn't really, and also is not particularly concerned. Uh, like I would, I would love to be able to ask Eisenstein personally. So, how do you feel about your friend's, you know, questioning COVID site? Right? Is that just free speech, or you know, are you concerned about about what they're doing with that stuff? Um, so, yeah, um, I, there's there's a way in which it's like it's it's like the coronation was a smart person's pandemic, and and it kind of moved across the line into a whole bunch of demographics, and who knows, maybe softened people up for 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 worse ideas. One thing that jumped out at me in his conspiracy myth is, you know, the the whole myth thing. Mythology is generally the term used to reference what he's using. Myth is pretty well embedded in our language as something false. And right. I know in my own writing, and that's also because my degree is in that, but I always use mythology when I'm referencing what he's referencing. And so I know that's that's a, you know, it's it's a slight point, but I... It, it came out to me, and I wouldn't have even brought it up, but right here it comes out to me in the very beginning when he says, I said my purpose is neither to advocate nor to debunk the conspiracy matter, narrative, but rather to look at what it illuminates. It is, after all, neither provable nor falsifiable. It, are you kidding? <laughs> There's, yes, it is falsifiable. Like there are plenty, like what he's wrapping around in the coronation, you can, you can show it's falsifiable. So right. when he says that specifically, mm -hmm. I, it made it really hard for me to continue because if that's where he's starting, I already know I'm going to just get shoveled the whole way through. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about where he is starting because um, I, and, and I, and I also just want to say that like, I try to be pretty assiduous at staying away from uh, ad hominem, even framework. So even when I say something like where he is starting, it makes me makes it sound like I'm talking about the person. I have no idea who this guy is. I don't know. I don't. I don't really care. And and so I'm really just looking at texts. I you know my the college that I wasn't able to finish was in literary theory. And you know it's like the author is dead. You just have the text, right? <laughs> just look at the text. And what I and so what I did uh, going back into his book list was I found this incredible book called. Um, uh, transformational weight loss. Now, I was like, wait a minute, um, what's, okay, so are you a dietitian? Are you, did you study some juicing thing or something like that? There's no sort of, I haven't read the whole thing, so I might be missing something, but there's no framing around it that says, I'm qualified to tell people about how to lose weight. Uh, and then I was wondering, okay, well, maybe there's something in his personal history. Maybe he's got his own personal weight loss story and he wants to share that. This is 2007. And as far as I can tell, that's not true. In fact, the one place that I could find in the preview copy that I got where he's talking about himself, he's like, you know, I, for one, uh, literally he's saying, you know, I see you fat person and I, as a, as a thin person, I admire your efforts to try to improve yourself. Here's one thin person who actually, yeah, no. So it's actually worse than that. Let me actually, let me actually, uh, read you the first page of this book. And then this, I think gives, this is 2007. And it's not like I want to like, uh, like pillory something that is 12 years old, but I, I do want to try to answer the question of, why does why does this text take on through some sort of charismatic virality uh, the 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 sheen of I don't know like legitimacy what what validates it 
Like, how, has this, is this a writer that somehow has been able to present uh, an unearned authority in something? And have they gotten away with it? And I think with this book, I think, yeah, there's the signs are that's true. So introduction, this book is primarily for overweight and obese people, in particular, those who cannot seem to control their eating. If you are fat and find it impossible to control the amount you eat or the foods you choose, then this book is for you. It is also for anyone who cannot seem to stay on a program of exercise. It's especially for you, blah, blah, blah. It goes down. The end of the little sort of uh, intro sermon is, this book will be fundamentally different from anything you have ever tried before. And I'm like, oh, wow. So wait a minute. He is He's willing to write like a self-help manual that is fat shaming, ableist, that, I mean, like, it's 2007, and I don't think he would have heard the term fat shaming then, so I'll give him that, but, like, this is somebody who's willing to, he wrote 9,000 words about about COVID-19, and he's not an epidemiologist, but he wrote 144 pages about weight loss, uh, transformational weight loss without being a dietitian, and so there's this kind of like what, what puts people in the position where they can do that? What kind of entitlement, what kind of incredible confidence uh, and, and like no knowledge or, or sort of respect for scope of practice? What, what, what allows that to happen? And, and when I ask those questions, I know that I'm kind of in cultic territory of charismatic authority knows no limitation. It will go anywhere. It will do anything. It just feels that it's right. Uh, and again, I'm talking about the texts. I don't know if he does this in his regular life, but certainly the books uh, give me pause. It's interesting. You know, uh, I went and looked at, at Daniel Pinchbeck's post um, yeah. that, that you referred to earlier, Derek, and it was really good. I thought it was, I thought it was a really good critique. And, and then I was looking down through the comments, and I noticed several people who are obviously part of Eisenstein's inner circle saying things like, when I listen to Charles, I don't listen to him as if he believes everything he's saying. Whoa. I listen to him as inhabiting multiple perspectives. Whoa. <laughs> and, right? right. And, and I always think of it more as satsang. Oh. Right? More as sitting at the feet of the awakened one and just, just bathing in the energy. Oh. Of, of this incredible mind that can take all these different perspectives and ultimately show us that the perspectives themselves, you know, don't, it doesn't matter if they're true or false. They, they illuminate something about the human condition. They show us a way forward. I think part of what has been so appealing and why, why so many of the people that you listed retweeted or shared on Twitter this article, I think a lot of it is that Someone who's able to pull back, and, and, and I think this fat shaming thing, this, this book about weight loss is really interesting too, right? Because it's almost like a, it's like let's, a, a roving kind of um, attempt to find an audience that is susceptible to a certain kind of being hooked, right? Right. And so I, I think that people who have really loved it, and this is me speculating, um, I think that someone who's able to step back and say, oh my God, we're in, this, we're in this scary time. It's disorienting. Let me tell you something. Nobody knows the truth. The truth is neither provable nor falsifiable, right? You start getting into this territory of, of Orwellian doublespeak. And actually in that say or G conversation, they talk about Orwellian doublespeak and or, or truth speak or whatever it's called. And say or G actually talks about it as being this profound 
spiritual observation that Orwell makes, but that there's a shadow side to it. But that really, you know, life is death and, and truth is falsehood, and et cetera, et cetera. So to be able to step back and, and say, we're in this scary time, no one knows what's really true, but we've always lived in, in, we, we, for a long time, we've lived in unsustainable ways. Maybe the coronation is our opportunity to wake up to making new choices about how we can live in love and unity and equality and all of these kinds of things that who's going to say no to that, right? Who's going to say yes to permanent lockdown? Who's going to say we should never hug each other or make love ever again or give a massage, right? No one right. wants to go with that. Everyone is instantly on board with the idea that this is our opportunity to fix everything that's wrong with the world. What a wonderful pivot that takes away so much of the anxiety and refocuses us on idealism and, and some kind of future utopia. It can take away the anxiety to the extent that it's, it's bought into, though, because, because yes. it's, it's, a very, it's actually a very anxious solution. The, the totalizing mm. solution uh, carries with it the sort of the, the, the possibility of its own fracture. Like I don't, I, it's, it's, I don't think, and I think, you know, the, the dedication that people will show to it is, might be indicative of, of how, how much you have to buy in in order to sustain it. But I like all spiritual bypass. Right, right, right. Um, now I'm looking at the time and I, and I want to ask you guys if, if you have, you have time for, for like one more little change or if Derek, you want to, you want to throw in something? Uh, well, there's one thing, but go ahead, Matthew. Yeah, I, go, in, no, in, in terms of time, okay. In terms of time, I, an hour is an idea. <laughs> an hour, an, right. and an hour, yeah. I mean, and I, by the way, my hour is different from your hour, and you know, I'm 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 in Eastern time zone anyway, and this anyway. Yeah. So <laughs> as of now, just know that it's I'm not. If I am ever limited by that, I will let you guys know. All right. I, okay. I am not. Cool. Uh, so it's actually two points that are related. With when I think of what. Eisenstein is doing and what Mickey Willis, when he called himself an investigative journalist. Whoa. And, and, and invest, if you are an investigative journalist, the truth is you do have to add a wide range of questions and you do ask a wide range of questions and you do have to look at multiple perspectives. That's very important. But if they were actually interested in getting to the truth, they would have challenged the people they were talking to. You have to. You have to do your research and then ask questions that make people uncomfortable. That's the only way you'll ever get. And there's actually a style. I mean, it's, it's a very, it's, it's something in my brief time as an as a actual reporter, it's hard because you need to spend multiple days with someone to do it. But you have to open up and let them be comfortable with you and then ask the hard questions. And it, everyone has a different threshold. But in neither of these cases, in, in Say yes. G video or in Plandemic, was there ever one attempt at making the interview subject uncomfortable or challenging oh. them in any capacity? Oh, not, not at all. And Not that leads, and that leads, and that leads to the the like when you're construct constructing an article as an investigative journalist, you you conclude you have a conclusions like I'm reading the book Dreamland right now, which is about the opioid crisis, and it's a masterful piece of investigative journalism. And what Eisenstein fails to do, and this is to Julian's point about you're right. If you're talking about transformation and unity and people getting to a better place, we're all for that. I don't know anyone who isn't, but I did not see in anything we've discussed in these three weeks, I have not seen any of the people we've discussed 
offer concrete solutions for getting there or where there even looks like. And so if you are anti-5G, what is that? Like break apart the telecommunications companies? Is it burning the towers? Is it throwing out your phones? Like what, what is the action necessary? Don't just raise people up, offer some solutions. And from all of these people, I see no solutions being offered. Yeah. I don't think the solution is the product though. I think the solution (laughs) is the, is the, the solution is the, or the, the product is the affect. Yeah. Let me jump in really quickly, Matthew, go to your, to your next topic. Um, I wanted to say that I, I just started watching the uh, the Netflix Epstein documentary. Right. Uh, I'm spacing out his first name right now. Uh, Jeffrey. 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 That's right. I was Mark David Jeffrey. Yeah. So the Jeffrey Epstein thing, and I was really struck by exactly what you're saying, Derek, which is that here here's this documentary that goes back in time to the beginnings of this particular investigative journalist becoming aware of Jeffrey Epstein and and, and the things of which. Uh, he was accused and, and, you know, we found out he was very heavily involved in. And, and the way that she talked about the process of uncovering the story and, the, and, the, and then the interviews that follow and the timeline and the, the scrupulousness. I mean, it's, the, the, it's such a huge, I'm going to curse for the first time on this podcast, it's such a huge fucking irony to me that, that these people who are, who are claiming to be skeptical of mainstream media sources We'll, 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 t- we'll look at people who have these h- high level of integrity about how they really investigate and find out the facts and talk to people and get perspectives from different sides by asking the difficult questions. We'll, we'll just generalize that all of them are bought and paid for by the power structure and in on the conspiracy. And then we'll take on board these, these completely, you know, a uh, 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 superficial, not living up to any kind of journalistic standards, not asking hard questions, not looking for multiple angles, kind of kind of conspiracy uh, purveyor. Right. It's it's a stunning irony. Yeah, agreed. I mean, the the devaluation of expertise. It's a whole other subject. That's like a whole sort of political science, you know, uh, um, scholarly field now. Mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, what? So so yeah, what I what I wanted to make sure that I, I hit on was um, j- just something about the structure of the, the, the rhetoric uh, and how, just how effective it is in creating a mood off the bat in the coronation. And the thing that I want to focus on, and, and really here I'm, I'm inspired by in, um, in my examination of abuse in yoga environments, uh, I've I've come up with this with this sort of formula for looking at what I call somatic dominance, uh, which is a series of preverbal sort of unconscious power dynamic gestures that occur between people who have power and people who have less power. Uh, and rhetorically in the coronation, uh, there's something similar going on with the use of the first person plural. Now, um, when I when I ran the this text through a text analyzer just to see where the main keywords were, uh, I found that the most used uh, word in the entire essay coming in at 66 times was the word our, uh, and then us, and then we. Uh, they're all up there at the top, and you can see that you know he speaks from this what I would call the first person omniscient plural, uh, where but he never really identifies himself 
who the we is. We, you know, he'll say our culture, our civilization, our world. And it's like, there's no sense of diversity, of, of inequality, of what it means to, you know, he's, he's writing about the coronation for all. Uh, and, you know, he's, I don't know if he knows that, that, you know, I don't know, some outrageous percentage of case fatalities in the United States is going to be among black people. Uh, so it's just, there's, there's all kinds of levels of, of sort of uh, uh, privilege that are unacknowledged and, and unspoken to. And so in my first kind of, you know, WTF uh, article about this, I really focused on the, the universalism of that language. Uh, and, but then you know, I, I heard him interviewed by Rich Roll, who I don't know, uh, because he did probably a dozen interviews with various uh, podcasters after he released The Coronation. Uh, and when I heard that, this other door popped open. Uh, so the first door is, well, he's trying to speak for everybody. and But behind that question is, uh, but who is he actually speaking to? And, and, and who, is the, who is the target audience? <coughs> And I heard some things that, that gave me some clues. So I want to run these by you. Uh, it's just from one podcast, but I think it's pretty indicative. Uh, so here's a quote. Um, he's, describing, he's describing what he finds to be problematic about the culture in general. He's talking about uh, you know, his, his concern about the myth of technological utopia. So here's the quote. Uh, and someday this grand project will be complete. This is what he says our culture, whoever we are, believes. And someday this grand project will be complete. When science develops a theory of everything, when nanotechnology and genetic engineering allows us to extend our control down to the nano level, then we will be completely safe and perhaps even win victory over death itself and attain to immortality and become the gods. The ultimate conquest would be to conquer death itself. Then we would have finally ascended over nature. And this ambition of ascent has a technological rendition where we ended up in space and uploading our consciousness to computers and things like that. And so it always also has a spiritual rendition, which sees spiritual progress analogously to technological progress as being more and more separate from the earth, from the world. Uh, so he goes on and, and, and it, it, I was listening to this and I was like, wait a minute, who actually believes this? Like, who does he imagine believes that we will that we, whoever we are, will conquer death. It's like he's created, and I realized, oh, what this essay is really good at is, and maybe other parts of his writing, is creating an amazing straw man, uh, somebody who yeah. believed that death can be conquered, that science can solve every, pro every problem, that our ultimate destiny is to be immortal brainwaves right. uploaded to the cloud, right? So like, is he talking to a 15-year-old? Is he talking to Elon Musk? Like, is he responding to some other equally charismatic writer with big ideas? Um, so talking to the cult, he's talking to the ghost of Ernest Becker. I guess that's. I, I guess I mean, but but what it what it I mean when I kept thinking about it, it was like, wait, what what this really does is it creates a really demeaning, contemptuous picture of the majority of people uh, who are painted as both naive but also like ready for his wisdom download. So. I really have to wonder why his readership feels comforted instead of patronized. Uh, mm -hmm. Like why they seem to mistake being infantilized for being inspired. I mean, he loves to talk about how we separate ourselves from the other, which is a term that he co-ops from the subaltern. Like he doesn't reference the actual people who come up with that word. 
Uh, but the only other I see in this text uh, is the person he like contemptuously scapegoats. Uh, it's this ridiculous caricature of the common citizen who is deprived of all capacity for like self-reflection, gravitas, dignity. It feels like the writing of somebody who doesn't interview people, right? Because people yeah. are complex. Yeah. So yeah. I just wanted to make sure I got that in. It was like, it was like, wait, he's speaking for everybody, but then he's also yeah. speaking to somebody that doesn't exist. And because I don't know anybody who is that stupid. Uh, yeah. And there's something about how like calm and restful the, mm -hmm. the entire discourse is that makes it that like, it's very, very, like I, I, it took a while to see, oh, he act, there's somebody that he actually hates in here. Mm. There's somebody that this text actually really hates, and I don't know who it is. Well, and so that the, you – go ahead, Gary. I wanted just to make one comment, and Beth, I know you yeah. have thoughts, Julian. It just amazes me that he, he talks about so confidently about mythology, but he apparently hasn't read any because right. mythology is the stories of man's grappling with nature – Mm -hmm. And and I reference this. I, I wrote a big think article yesterday that was based on Julian's essay, and I talk about Arjuna, who is the hero of the Bhagavad Gita, but in the Mahabharata he dies because of his pride. And mythology always makes sure that people come to terms. Like this goes from Gilgamesh on, they come to terms with their hubris, and it and the the idea that we will transcend death is is that's one of the old, I mean that is Gilgamesh that is our first mythology that we have and it just perpetu it's been perpetuated for four thousand years now, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the this recognizing that there is this straw man, I think is I think is big because if you're if you're going to present a vague utopian vision for which you are the prophetic kind of uh, harbinger, then, then being very specific about the enemy that you're going to straw man seems, seems really useful, right? And, and if, that, if that straw man is that science and technology has this inevitable kind of vision of where we're headed towards that ultimately robs us of our connection with nature and, our, and of our humanity and of our true spiritual destiny, then that, that's, I think that speaks very powerful, very powerfully to the audience that you know, we're all sort of situated within. Right. And I mean, props to, to Jack Weber for bringing out like a closet mm -hmm. conspiracy theorist because as, as a term, because really once you unpack the straw man, this person that doesn't exist, uh, it's, it's, you know, it leaves me with the thought of, okay, well, like wh who has been undone here? What has actually been, I, I don't know anybody. I don't know anybody alive who, if you talk, sat down and talked with them, uh, would say, well, obviously we're going to be cryogenized and that's what we want and that we're not dealing with death properly. <laughs> I mean, the thing, and the thing about the conspiracy theory is that it always contains something that is more or less plausible. Uh, yes. more or less resonant. And, and of yes. course, we, we belong to a capitalistic neoliberal culture that does what it can to propagandize us away that from is. death and destruction. And so it's like, yeah, that's obvious. But let's, let's turn to, the, let's turn to the, the actual critiques of that instead of, instead of you know, instead of the, the, the pretend ones. Yeah, and contained contained within that straw manning and that particular setting up of these of these uh, 
oppositions, even though we're pretending to be non-dual, right? Contained within that then is the resonance with 5G technology can't be trusted. Vaccines are part of a medical model that has lied to us and, and, and is, doesn't have our best interests at heart and is willing to kill babies, et cetera, right? Contained right, right. Is, is this, I'm not going to reference any of it directly, but I will link to some people who, who do, and I'm going to spin a more sort of abstract, intellectually sophisticated um, narrative within which these things are situated and within which you can find these kinds of resonances. And, right. and, that, and, and you're right, Jack does a very good job of uh, pointing that out.